Well, take your Bibles, and I want to just have a, a fun moment with the kids who might be watching. I know not, uh, all of you are working very hard on memorizing the books of the Bible. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the sixth book of the Bible, so let's work on getting there together. So let's start at the beginning, and then we'll stop at the sixth book. We start with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and right, Joshua. Open to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is one of the most familiar books in the Bible for a lot of reasons. It's especially familiar to our children and in the children's curriculum all around the world. Uh, Almost every Sunday school covers the events of Joshua. Most everyone knows the story of Israel's army who marched around, walked around the walls of Jericho seven times and then blew the trumpets and the walls, what, came tumbling down. Well, there's a lot more to this book than just that story. It is an epic revelation of who God is, predominantly as a promise-making and promise-keeping God. This gives us a familiar look at God, another snapshot of God. It's something we know of God, have studied of God all throughout His Word, and will be affirmed again tonight. Each book in the Bible reveals something unique and something even repetitive and overlapping about who God is, what God's like, and what God does, and Joshua is certainly no different. Now Joshua, let's get some orientation, begins really the the 12 historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, There's a section, a genre in the Old Testament called the historical books, historical narratives. And Joshua begins the story, the telling of the story of Israel's occupying and settling in the promised land. These historical books, books actually break down into three sections themselves. Uh, There's the theocratic books, that's Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. These three books cover the conquest and the settlement of Canaan. And they also reveal the immediate promise of the people to be obedient and then the cycles of disobedience that they fall into. Then we have what we call the monarchical books or the kingly books. This is Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And these three books, these three sets of books rather, cover the, 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 the history of the kings of Israel, the 40 kings of Israel, who they were, what they did. As we'll study when we get there, there were only eight out of 40 that honored and followed the Lord. So there's the theocratic books, the monarchical books, and then there's the restoration books. That's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These books describe the, the return of the remnant of Judah back to their homeland after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So those three books outline the history of Israel coming into the land, Israel being obedient temporarily in the land, Israel being disobedient in the land, Israel being judged and taken from the land, and then the restoration back to re-inhabit the land. Now to Joshua specifically. By the way, these, uh, these Sunday nights feel a whole lot more like a classroom than they do a, uh, a sermon, but I hope that you'll find some encouragement for your own soul, even in just this simple teaching through these historical books. Joshua specifically. Um, 
it's the, it's the inheritance of the promised land. Now, in order to understand the promised land, I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 13. We hear the term promised land in our Sunday school curriculum. We hear it in sermons. We hear it over and over. What does it mean that Israel is the promised land? Well, that all begins in Genesis chapter 13. And in order to understand Joshua, you have to have this foundational uh, 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 data, this foundational promise, this foundational theology that's laid in the book of Genesis that will ultimately be fulfilled in the book of Joshua. Genesis chapter 13, look at verse 14. Now the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. That's a promise of real estate that was given from the Lord to Abraham. Turn over to Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. He repeats, I will give to you and to your descendants. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourns, sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. There is a world of theology, a world of promise, a world of prophecy in Genesis 17 verse 8. First of all, he says the land of Canaan from the north to the south, which we'll get into the, the, um, uh, the parameters of that and the actual geographical markers of that in the coming weeks. God says, I will give that to you and to the descendants after you. That's the Jewish nation. That's Israel. All the land of Canaan, listen to this, as an everlasting possession, a covenant, and I will be their God. One of the reasons that we at Mission Road Bible Church uh, believe so strongly in the future of um, a saved Israel under the economy of God in the future that a remnant of, of the Jewish nation of ethnic Jews will believe in the Messiah and comprise what Romans 11 calls the natural branch to be grafted back into the Abrahamic covenant. One of the reasons we believe that to be literally and physically and geographically true is this. They are the promised people given a promised land. Well, after being held in slavery for 400 years, we saw that they, uh, at the end of Genesis, the, uh, the small little band of Jews was taken to Egypt and they grew to over 2 million. For 400 years they were there. God then uh, delivered Abraham's seed, these Jews from Egypt. Then, because of pronounced disobedience... After the exodus, after they were delivered from, Israel, from Egypt, rather, pronounced disobedience, the people of Israel wandered around in the wilderness between Egypt and Israel for four decades, for 40 years, until that generation died off. Then Moses spoke to the new generation. His final sermons are penned in the book of Deuteronomy, which we looked at in our last overview the new generation stands just on the edge of the Jordan River, about to cross over into the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, which was promised by God to Abraham's descendants. 
their forefathers' promise was now going to be fulfilled in these children. The crossing over the Jordan River and the conquering and settling of the land is the book of Joshua. So Moses, remember, the older generation has died off. Moses preaches his final sermons, which is the book of Deuteronomy. They then cross from the, from the plains right in Moab over the Jordan River into the, uh, the territory of Canaan, divide, go north and south, and start conquering the land. That is the content of the book of Joshua. Now the book breaks down into two basic halves. The first half describes the seven-year conquest of Canaan. Remember, they cross the land, they, they divide up, they go north, they go south, they conquer the land. It takes about seven years. They were severely outnumbered and severely outgunned, if we can say that. Uh, they had not been a warring nation. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have uh, chariots and, and horses. And yet God said, if you will trust in me, I will, through my power and your obedient trust, conquer the nations that are bigger, stronger, and more weaponized than you. And all of these city-states fell at the hands of Israel. That's the first half of of Joshua. The, the last half of the book details the dividing up of the land among the 12 tribes and closes, which we'll spend some time in in a few minutes, with Joshua's final sermon, his final challenge, which has unbelievable application for all of us since it was written. Remember, let's get a little orientation. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, describe the beginning of creation, uh, the, the beginning of the nation of Israel, and the, the founding of the pagan nations as well. At the core of the Pentateuch is the founding of the nation of the Jews, Israel herself, and the revelation of the God of Israel, Yahweh, which was the four letters yod Hey wow Hey. Uh, we call it the ineffable, the unspeakable tetragrammaton, the four letters. Uh, the best way that, that scholars have put those letters together is that we would say Yahweh. God calls the nation into Egypt, grows them. They become a great mighty nation. They're delivered from Egypt in a great exodus. They disobey. That generation dies, as I said a moment ago. Their children were permitted now to cross over the Jordan and that generation will inherit the promised land. Moses was the man that the Lord used to lead the people out of Egypt. But he disqualifies himself by striking the rock, remember that, for the, for the water. And he himself is disallowed, he's not allowed to cross over and go into the land. It's a tragic, tragic uh, story. He even begs God again, please let me go, let me go see the land. And God said, no. He goes up on a mountain, dies, and is buried in a secret place. The book of Joshua then picks up just after Moses has died and Israel sits at the, at the edge of the promised land and is about to go in. Let's orientate ourselves by looking at the first nine verses of the book of Joshua. Joshua 1, you know these these words, these, these uh, verses very well. There's a repeated phrase three times. It's repeated in this section. And let's see if you can pick it up. Joshua 1.1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan. Remember, they're standing right on the edge of it. You and all this people to the land which I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Remember, the theme throughout this book is promise made is a promise kept for God. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and in the, and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, Joshua. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses which my servant commanded you. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth that's the teaching, but you shall meditate it day on it day and night, that's the personal devotion, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you it's hard not to read these verses without remembering what uh, Paul told the Philippians this morning. The Lord is near. That's the reason we don't ever have to be anxious. The Lord is near. He makes that same promise to Joshua. Joshua would need this promise. Remember, they are going up against enemies that they have no business fighting. They are going, uh, going up against city-states that have horses and chariots and, and weapons that Israel doesn't possess. But God says, trust in me, be careful to remember and do the law, know that I am with you, and I will make your way prosperous, which is not a, not a prosperity gospel promise. It's basically a promise that says, everything I've told you I will do, I'm going to do in helping you conquer the land of Canaan. Joshua is presented here as the successor to Moses, but also, almost as a new Moses, a Moses 2.0. The parallels are incredible. They're noteworthy. L think about this. Like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the law given to them at Sinai. Moses' primary task was tell the people to know and obey the law. We heard right here, God tells Joshua, know and obey the law personally and teach it to the people. Also, like Moses, Joshua sends spies into the land gets a report, and responds appropriately. Also, like Moses, Joshua leads the whole nation to travel into the promised land, or at least up to it in Moses' account. And like Moses, Joshua sees a water miracle. Moses saw the parting of the Red Sea, and Joshua will see the river, Jordan River, stop and the people cross on dry land. 
parallels are remarkable and incredible. God is definitely putting his hand on Joshua, tapping him on the shoulder in front of all the people and saying, this is your new leader. Listen to him just as you did, my servant Moses. When we come to chapters 6 through 12, we see the battles to conquer the inhabitants of Canaan. Now, chapter 6 is that famous story that we all know of Jericho. The people are uh, called to do something odd. Imagine yourself in Jericho watching this. They march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant leading them. They had an inside scoop, though, on what was going on in Jericho from Rahab. She had turned to the God of Israel, hoping that the people of Jericho might as well, but they don't. On the seventh day, the priests blast their trumpets and the walls do come tumbling down. Israel defeats Jericho, the first defeat, the first battle, the first war, the first victory on the land of Canaan. God is the one who will do the conquest for all the people if they obey and trust him. And that's made evident in what he commands the people to do and how they respond in the battle of Jericho. The key is this. If Israel is going to be successful, if they're going to conquer and settle the land, it will only be by obeying and trusting God because the numbers don't make sense on paper. They should not have won the battles they're about to win, but they do because of Yahweh. Israel's army, again, is outnumbered and outspeared, outgunned, so to speak, in every possible way. Keep going, you get to chapter 9. It's a wonderful chapter. Chapter 9 is the story of the Gibeonites. They, like Rahab, hear of the people, hear of their God, hear of Yahweh, the, the great I am who I am, and they repent. They turn to serve and follow the God of Israel. But as soon as chapter 9 is over and we all feel really encouraged about their repentance, you come to chapters 10 through 12 and all other kings ally themselves together and come against Israel and in an amazing upset against all laws, against all numbers, they are soundly defeated by the armies of Israel, untrained and outweaponed. Now here, we need to stop for a moment. This is a question that the scholars have asked, that Christians have asked, that theologians have posed for for millennia. And it's the question really that dominates anyone who would read the Old Testament. How could God lead war against nations and armies, which he does in chapters 10, 11, and 12, women and children, and call for an absolute annihilation of these people. That's plagued a lot of theologians. It's caused some people to abandon the God of the Bible, to say this is not ethical, this is not right. It caused Marcion in the second century to say the God of the Old Testament was a God of war. The God of the New Testament is Jesus, is a God of love. How do we reconcile the God that we know in the Old and New Testament, the same God, with his call to lead the nation nation of Israel to war against 
city-states and, and wipe them out. Men, women, children, livestock. Well, let's remember a few things. Just a, a little theology of Old Testament war, if I, if I may. First of all, number one, the wages of sin is death. These are, these are I don't know, four ways that you can remember or think through the way that uh, God commands war and death and killing off these nations. First, the wages of sin is death. Nothing happened to those people which was not going to happen to them eventually. And nothing happened to those people, by the way, in terms of their, their final death, that wouldn't happen to all of the Israelites as well. The wages of sin is death for everyone. So that's just the foundational theological principle for us all. Secondly, these nations were morally corrupt. Leviticus 18 tells us that. They included child sacrifices in Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31. These were wicked people. They deserved the judgment of God. And God used the sword of the Israelites to execute it. Thirdly, and this might surprise some people, God did not truly command absolute genocide. Genocide was a way of using hyperbolic language to describe the destruction of the influence of the culture. Let me give you an example of that. In Deuteronomy 7, for example, Israel, uh, uh, God tells Israel to totally drive out the Canaanites, which is followed by the commands not to intermarry with the Canaanites or go into business with them. So he says, wipe them out, destroy their culture, destroy their, 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 their way of living, but don't intermarry with them later. Meaning that God understood that the command to wipe them out was a cultural command, not an absolute command for every being, or he wouldn't have said later, don't intermarry with the ones who are alive. Also, Joshua chapter 10, verse 36 to 39, we're told that Hebron is totally destroyed and that Israel left no survivors. And yet, in chapter 15, verse 13 to 15, you see these same towns, and they're still populated by the Canaanites. Is God a liar? No, not at all. He's talking about the wiping away of their culture, their idolatry, their worship. It was divine hyperbole on purpose to make the point of how wicked their worship was, how wicked their culture was, and how it needed to be completely obliterated. But not everyone died. A fourth thing to remember, God was a unique, uh, this was rather a unique time in which God was establishing the nation in the land and he desired that the pagan influences be cleared out, wiped out. As they began their nation, he wanted the idolatry to be ground to a halt. Deuteronomy 20, Israel is commanded to live in peace with the external nations. The point here is to rid the idolatry that might coexist within their borders. They're to live in peace but not commingle with them. The main point of this section is found in Joshua 11, verse 23. Turn over there for a moment. Joshua 11, verse 33, 23, rather. Joshua... Verse 23, Joshua 11. 
So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. What does that tell us? God promised that the land, the land would be Israel's. God promised they would come and conquer it. God promised that if they trusted and followed through with God, that they would indeed inherit the land, understand their inheritance, and follow, Christ, follow the, the Lord. Well, that happened indeed, and God fulfilled his promise. Interesting section of Scripture God promises and God keeps his promise. Just a little aside. This is the same God that you and I know and love and worship. He makes promises and he keeps them today just as he did then. But he's also very serious about sin. If you were to look back at at chapter 7, one of the defeats that Israel received was that they were to, to go to Ai and conquer them and to leave, to take no spoil from war, but one man named Achan did so. Caused the defeat of the nation. They found out it was him. His whole family was executed. God is still serious about sin. He is as serious about sin as he is about obedience setting a standard for his holiness so that when, he, when we get to chapter 11, he says, look, I, I fulfilled my promise. All the tribes have divided up. They have their areas. I have done what I said I would do. Specifically, chapters 13 to 22 establish all these boundary lines. Very interesting from a geographical perspective. If you read Joshua 13 through 22, do so with a Bible atlas beside you so you can see where each tribe lands and and the borders that they established. This was to fulfill the promise to Abraham that his sons, his tribes, would inherit the land of Canaan, which we now know as Israel. Ultimately, it climaxes in Joshua 21. Look there for a moment. Joshua 21, verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. We heard that same term back in chapter 11. He gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. There's the God of promise and promise keeping. And no one of all their enemies stood before them complete victory the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand not one of the the, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed all came to pass I don't know if you underline things in your Bible that is a promise to bank your life on all not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed all came to pass which again as those who believe in a future for Israel, we believe God will fulfill that promise even yet in the future. They saved Israel who knows their Messiah, who've been redeemed by the gospel and will give praise to the lamb that they were a part of slaying. This is a watershed passage because it shows that God is a promise-keeping God. Now, before we leave this section, can can we just have a, a, a moment with each other? Uh, turn back to Joshua chapter 13. Just to, 
This is a, a, one point of humor. I just, I, I, I think that God in his wisdom gave us all of our emotions. And as image bearers of God, we understand humor because God invented fun and humor. <clears throat> Can you just, in your heart, have a moment of, of slight humor at looking at how this is framed? In Joshua 13, 1, just listen to this. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. It's just funny that uh, when you look carefully at the scriptures that I wish there were people laughing in the, in the building. Even our skeleton crew here is not laughing at that. I do think it's funny though. I appreciate those courtesy giggles. God is... is, is is the gracious image-sharing God. He shares our, his image with us, which we bear humor as part of that. When you get to chapters 23 and 24 then, uh, Joshua is old. Joshua is coming near his death. And honestly, all that we've done has taken us to get to chapter 23 and 24. I'm going to read the bulk of these chapters and stop because... To overview Joshua is to read these last two chapters. The reason that the reason that God gave us these last two chapters is the reason that we're doing these 66 snapshots of God. Joshua himself, in his old age, in his final sermon, in his final address, gives us history and theology. He looks at everything that's happened and says, These are your takeaways. These are two of my favorite chapters in God's holy word. I want to read them with you slowly. I want you to read them carefully as you hold them. This is, this is one of the best things that the church does together as we read God's word. Joshua 23. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old and advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I'm old and advanced in years. That seems to be a phrase that continues to, to ring in Joshua's ears. This is a critical moment. Except for Achan's sin... Israel had been undefeated. They had conquered the Canaanites. They had conquered the land. They had settled the land. Each tribe had their own uh, regulated and relegated land. They had rest for this short, very short and sweet season. And remember this season because we're going to open up next week in the book of Judges and this season will have evaporated. There was rest and peace. Joshua tells these leaders, I'm old and advanced in years, verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. What a great reminder. You didn't win these battles, Joshua says, because you're great and mighty. You won these battles because... I was with you. 
See, I have appointed to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, toward the uh, setting of the sun. The Lord your God, he will thrust them out before you and drive them from before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. There's more conquering yet to come. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right or to the left hand, that you will not associate with these nations which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Why? For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand outnumbered. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So, verse 11, listen. Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Stop right there for a moment. There's a theological practicality here. There's a pattern. There's a rhythm that's important. Look at what God's done. Remember what God has done. Recount what God has done. Rehearse what God has done. Uh, uh, Tell each other what God has done so that the takeaway, verse 11, you will be diligent to heed yourselves to love the Lord your God. You know, that, that still stands for us today. Even looking at Christ, looking at his work for us, looking at the full expression of God in human form, in the the God-man, deity in flesh, to see all that he is for us and has done for us is to make us want to love him. But there's a warning, verse 12. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations out from before you. He's going to stop supporting your military efforts. But they will be a snare and a trap to you and whip you on the sides and thorns in your, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. There is, is the prophecy of the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. If you don't stay faithful to me, you will lose the land I gave you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. I'm going to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. What a testimony. You have seen God promise and God promise and God promise and God fulfill and God fulfill and God fulfill. You have been witnesses. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of those promises has failed. It shall come about that just that just as all the good words which the Lord God, your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he's destroyed from you 
destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. In other words, if God promised to give you the good promises he gave you and God is promising that he will judge you if you turn from him, know on good certainty, on historical evidence, he will keep those promises. Verse 16, when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Look at the when, not if. When you do this, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. When you do this, that should have rung in their ears. And it did scare them. You'll see their response in a moment. Then like a good like a good preacher he rehearses the history. This is so important. The reason that we have the book of Joshua and the Old Testament and the gospel record and the book of Acts. The reason we have these historical accounts is so that we will go back and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and read and remember and remember what God has done so that we will know that God who never changes the promise keeping God in the past is still the promise keeping God in the present. Verse one of chapter 24. Then God gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and he called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, by the way, presenting themselves to Joshua, God's leader was presenting themselves before God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham. He goes all the way back to Abraham's dad. And the father of Nahor, they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, to Esau Esau. I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but to Jacob and his sons, they went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in their midst, and afterward I brought you out. There's the Exodus. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, And he brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. There's those 40 years of wandering. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. And they fought with you and I gave them into your hand. This is just before they crossed the Jordan. And you took possession of their land which I destroyed before them. Then Balak, the son of Zippor and king of Moab, and fought Israel and sent him and summoned Balaam and the son of Beor to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Victory, victory, victory. 
Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. Verse 13, so important. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you lived in them. And you were eating of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. We call that in modern real estate turnkey. You move in and there's nothing you have to do. It's ready to be lived in. That was the land. Verse 14 and 15. Very precious real estates in your Bible. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve, worship the Lord. Verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you were living. But as for me, Joshua, as for my family, my house, we choose, we will serve the Lord. Every generation, every family, every person ultimately will come to this fork in the road where you decide whether you will serve the God of the Bible or you will serve the gods of this world. Joshua stands forever as a testimony. He was given that choice. He made the right one, but he also charged his people, make sure you understand that you have a choice and make sure you understand the power of your choice. You should choose the Lord. Now, what we're going to read in the next few verses is very important to remember when we come back to the book of Judges next week. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, Yahweh, is our God. It is he who brought us up from our fathers from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will serve the Lord for he is our God. This is good news. This is revival. This is exactly what Joshua was hoping to hear. They heard the history. They saw the testimony of the Lord Lord, and they chose to follow him. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord. Why? For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he has done good to you. What he's saying is God is holy and I know you and the sinfulness of your heart is going to rebel against God's holiness. They push back. 
the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, yes, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Wow, there's an insight. They had in their presence foreign idols. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statue statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law and he took a large stone, set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness for a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us Thus it shall be for a witness against you so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their inheritance. They left Shechem and they went out all over the Canaanite area, the land of Canaan where they re-inhabited. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? Well, when we come back to the book of Judges next week, you'll know exactly what to make of this. The people had well-intentioned hearts. This, is, uh, this reminds me of like going to camp. You go to camp, you get all fired up, you're excited about what the Lord's done, you see a vision of God that is refreshing, you say what the Lord commands, I want to do, I want to be obedient, and then we call that sometimes what, a mountaintop experience. You get back in the flow of life, And you're pulled aside to other idolatries, other things that occupy our time, attention, money, mental real estate. That's idolatry other than the Lord. The people were warned. The people said they would not do that. Moses puts a, excuse me, Joshua puts a stone there and says, this stone metaphorically heard your promises, but it will stand now forever as a testimony against you. You remember, remember this statue, this, this sign, this rock, this, this marker will stand forever that you made a promise. It's similar to a wedding ring that someone might wear who then later gets a divorce and has to take off that wedding ring. It symbolizes a promise that was not made. This rock of remembrance was a stone that was to testify against them. Not all of them. Some were faithful. We'll find uh, in the next uh, few uh, books, uh, not only a few folks in Judges, a very few, but also Ruth, that some did keep their, their commitment. Some did want to follow and fear and, and obey Yahweh. The book then ends with Joshua's death. He dies and is buried in the, uh, the, the final verses. And it begins a new chapter in the nation of Israel. The land of Canaan is conquered. Every tribe has their spot. The tabernacle worship is continuing 
And it's all going to work toward the temple worship in Jerusalem that everyone desires so much. What do we do with the book of Joshua? What do we see in God? Remember, this is a snapshot of God. We see a God who makes promises because he cares about his people. We see a God who knows how to fulfill his promises, promises, listen, against all odds. The people that Israel conquered, they should have never conquered militarily. And yet because of God, they did. God made promise and he alone was the one who could fulfill the enactment of those promises. It's the exact same today. God has promised us, we looked at this morning, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't leave you as as an orphan. The Lord is near. The Lord will, will support those who cry out to him. The Lord will hear the prayers and the cries of those who have anxiety, who have worries, who have trials. He's promised us that no temptation, no trial will ever overtake us, but such as is common to man. And he's faithful and will deliver us so that we can escape the possibility of sin and endure the trial that we find ourselves in. God of Joshua, ready, is Jesus. The God of the Old Testament is God in flesh. He promised salvation. He promised good news out of bad. Just as God is trustworthy in the Old Testament, he remains trustworthy for He is our God. So, we'll wrap this up by asking the question, who will you serve? Who will you serve? Choose today whom you will serve. The vain idols of our world, oh, we may not have a little stone and wooden idols sitting in our living room, but we have idols that do stare at us in our living room. Things that take time and attention and resources away from the time and attention and resources we should be devoting to our God. There's idols in the heart. There's idols in our lives. The choice remains for us today just as it did in the days of Joshua. I trust that you understand the choice before you And that you will make the choice and not be like these fickle people. We turn to the book of Judges. We find from the very beginning that people were doing what was right, not in God's eyes, not according to the law, but they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Joshua Judges and Ruth must be understood with the connective tissue that the Holy Spirit intends for us to see. A vain promise was just made by a fickle people that will fail when the temptation of the idols in their lives come to bear.